0: Samuel Chu is used to his phone going rogue in the middle of the night, buzzing, beeping, demanding his attention. He's an advocate for democracy in Hong Kong, but he lives here in the U.S. That 15-hour time difference, it means that when news breaks back in China, he's usually fast asleep. So when his phone started going off a couple weeks ago, he mostly just tried to ignore it.
1: But when I finally, like, was... Bothered enough to actually uh, pick up my phone to 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 read, I realized that this is breaking news, just a different kind of breaking news uh, because it was my name that was uh, appearing on the breaking news.
0: The breaking news, it was that the Chinese government had issued a warrant for Samuel's
1: arrest. The first two people that I actually picked up uh, was one. Just happened to be a reporter from Hong Kong, actually in Hong Kong, who called me. Who you know, who I actually know, and she was like, "Well, I just want to check to see if you're okay and if you have a statement." And I was like, "I literally, you're the first person I've spoken to you uh, since I found." I mean, I'm still in bed. It, it really didn't hit me until I think like a, a few minutes after that. Okay, like this is about me specifically.
0: Samuel is an American citizen, but his organization, the Hong Kong Democracy Council, it advocates for Hong Kong's protesters in Washington. The warrant for Samuel's arrest was issued under Hong Kong's new security law. That law includes these provisions that it applies to foreign nationals, even if they're on foreign soil.
1: In fact, I I was talking to someone just the first few weeks after the national security law that They were joking that they kind of wrote this law for you, Samuel. What did they mean by that? That they, I think, read some of those provisions as almost targeting people and organization like mine.
0: Samuel is quick to note he is totally safe. He hasn't even seen any documentary evidence of charges being filed against him.
1: Because I think there's absolutely nothing legally that he can do to me. Um, In fact... I don't even know how they would serve a warrant, to be honest. I mean, are they going to text it to me? Are they going to email me? Uh, I mean, it's, it's not like they can actually serve a warrant uh, on American soil.
0: It must make you feel a little crazy, though, where you're like, "Is this happening? Is this not happening?"
1: Yeah, and and obviously, I think the I think that's part of the tactic. I think the reality here is that this is designed to be not just a traditional, conventional arrest warrant, you know, we're trying to get you uh, and, you know, come to your door and break it down and handcuff you and actually take you to jail. I think that the idea here is that it's supposed to implicate um, everyone and anyone who's connected to me. And I think that that is a much larger set of ripple effects that you don't necessarily see. had these conversations in the past weeks of Americans, folks, just everyday Americans here in the United States who are friends of mine, who works with me, even if they're not in any way connected to Hong Kong, the fact that they're related to me now create this question of are they going to be censored? Are they going to be blacklisted? The fact that that conversation is happening, I mean, that's remarkable.
0: Today on the show, how Samuel Chu got on the Hong Kong government's blacklist. It turns out he was practically born into this movement. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service... Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Samuel Chu comes from an activist family in Hong Kong. His parents still live there. As a kid, they sent him to the U.S. for his own safety. His parents could see, even then, that life in their city was beginning to change. But Samuel still remembers going to protests with his parents.
1: I was there in 89 in May uh, when the first million Hong Kongers march ever took place. How old were you? I was 11. Wow. And I remember... um, marching it and spend the whole day walking it and and you have to remember when you have a million people and hong kong is a very tiny place you don't go very far (laughs) when you when you march (laughs) and those images and and the memories i think are, are seared for me uh as far as what it means even at that point to be a hong konger
0: Hong Kongers were massing in the streets to show support for the protests in Tiananmen Square. After the crowds in Beijing got forcibly broken up by the army, Samuel's father helped Chinese activists escape to the West via Hong Kong. The project was called Operation Yellowbird.
1: It was a smuggling operation that helped, I think, over, I think the estimate is about over 500 dissidents that uh, escaped from the square or uh, from other parts of the country who was being sought by Chinese uh, authorities uh, and they smuggled them into Hong Kong and uh, put them in safe houses and then gave them safe passage, uh, negotiated their safe passage to Western countries.
0: That doesn't sound like safe work. Did you understand what your family was doing and did you understand the risk of
1: it? Yes, a hundred percent. and. I actually, my dad actually used to take me to the safe houses on the weekends. So I actually got a chance and and spent a lot of time with many of the dissidents who were uh, smuggled out of China and into Hong Kong. And I, I still remember, and I, you know, obviously I was fairly young and it's been a long time, but I think I remember like playing soccer with some of them. Huh. On the weekends, and you know, watching and listening to my dad talk, and try to reassure them as they as they're awaiting uh, approval of their papers and and travel documents. How did that
0: shape your perspective?
1: I, I think that as I look back now, again, this is something why the, I, I, it doesn't shock me to have an arrest warrant issue for me. Um, this goes all the way back to. In eighty nine and, and, and ninety, and having witnessed and experienced really in a, in the a presence of people who, in a lot of ways, uh, had it much worse. You know, who have had to, you know, pick up and, and not be able to take anything they own and, and just go into hiding and then essentially be on the run. And, and I think that it it reminded me of of just even at eleven. I recognize the enormous risk and cause of what uh, it costs each of those dissidents, what it costs my family, my parents, my dad in particular. And that has been continuous. You know, it's not just that my dad was there in 89 and, and ran the smuggling and underground railroad. Uh, I was there a year and a half ago um, last year. I I attended the trial uh, of my dad for his role in the 2014, the Umbrella Movement. The the, the Umbrella Movement, Um, and so I was in the courtroom this past year uh, when they, in Hong Kong this time, put my dad and and eight others on trial for essentially organizing protests. And uh, so I think there's been this very uh, fundamental awareness that this has enormous consequences, uh, personally, for our family and and for those people we know, uh, and that it it could become not only life-threatening, that you could risk prisons, uh, but this affects everyone uh, that we're connected to.
0: So I want to talk about Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is at this moment now. I did an interview last year with a woman who'd worked as a professor in Hong Kong, and she had written an essay where she basically said, Hong Kong protesters are going to lose, but they should keep protesting anyway, because you never know. But it seems like we're at this wall, like every, everything that's happened in the last month in terms of people's political speech being limited seems so extreme. What do you think protest is going to look like in Hong Kong in the next weeks and months and years?
1: Well, I have tremendous respect and faith in Hong Kongers in Hong Kong because uh, I think you, already, you have already seen, you know, even from 2014 than from last year. Um, there is nothing that would stop Hong Kongers from resisting. Um, you know, people in the U.S. want to ask, well, does this mean that they will not see any more public, you know, display of, of resistance and protest? I said that uh, you are dead wrong if you think that this is going to somehow limit uh, the voices and display of resistance. And I think you're already seeing, I mean, even in, in the rapid pace that we're in, you know, the the moment that they started banning slogans and, anthems and um you know stickers and uh pieces of papers (laughs) um you're seeing a tremendous um creativity and resilience of people figuring out ways to boister displeasure you know uh from people walking around holding up blank pieces of paper you know, blank pieces of white paper as a, as, a, as a sign of resistance because they can no longer display any slogans or uh, logo or design. And I think that you're going to continue to find and see, and, and I have no, I have no um, doubt at all that the resiliency that has been shown over the past year are just going to continue. And, and I think one of the things that people have to realize, and I think the CCP, the Chinese government in Beijing, has to understand, is that this is not like any other crackdown they have ever done. Why not? You cannot put 7.5 million people who have lived, breathed freely for generations in Hong Kong back into a controlled Iron Curtain type of environment Uh, it's like telling your kids after you turn on the tv and put them in front of it and say that the tv doesn't exist and uh because they understand and know now and, and for decades have exercised you know creatively and fully and vigorously their rights to free speech a protest assembly of access to an independent and fair judiciary I mean, all of these things is ingrained. And I think it's just different than what I think the Beijing government is used to, of being able to just say that, you know what, if I never show you anything that's free, then you will never ask for it.
0: You founded the Hong Kong Democracy Council just a little less than a year ago. I'm curious, you've worked in social justice movements for a long time. Why did it feel important to you to start this advocacy organization at this moment?
1: So there were two things that I think were primarily that um, drove me and and motivated and and, and was my main concern and purpose. One is my career has been built on how do you move from grassroots protests to uh, real, permanent, politics and political influence. How do you build power, essentially, of people that does not have power right now?
0: And your work there is mostly lobbying Washington, right? Making sure that these protesters in Hong Kong have a voice in, say, Congress.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, the first real motivation for me was that we needed to have a U.S. operation, a presence, a permanent presence in D.C., that would actually be able to translate the enormous goodwill and inspiration that, and, and, and credibility that the protest in Hong Kong was generating, and both translate it, reframe it, so that it actually directly influenced U.S. policy. And to have someone that understands U.S. politics, and I think that that's the part that was missing, was that so many people cared about what's happening in Hong Kong and understood and loved Hong Kong. But many of those people just didn't know and understand U.S. politics in the same way that I do. And so I saw an obligation there to create, essentially, a U.S. voice for the movement in Hong Kong that... uh, turned out to to, uh, to be essential and, and so critical in passing actual legislation and not just having photo ops and protests and rallies.
0: I can see why this would be threatening to mainland China, though.
1: Exactly. and But the way that we did it is unique also is because for the first time, we have a U.S.-based organization run by U.S. citizens that are focused on shaping U.S. policy. I wanted to make sure that there will be a platform uh, where Hong Kongers can speak for Hong Kongers. I think that it is one thing to rely on news media, so even member of Congress or our partners in international human rights who have been a you know very strong advocate over the years. But my strong belief is that Hong Kongers have the best and most powerful case to make for themselves.
0: I was struck by the fact that you founded this organization in the middle of the Trump presidency because... It was in the middle of a huge reset of our relationship with China. And I-, I wonder if you can talk about the challenges of doing your work in this moment, in terms of like who do you partner with and who do you trust?
1: I, I am one of those rare sort of political operatives that have been adamantly and fiercely nonpartisan and bipartisan in my career. I have never worked on a part for a party I've never worked on a candidate and I applied the, the same lens and the same values uh, to this work in Hong Kong, which I think was essential because Hong Kong has always been a bipartisan issue. Uh, we have managed to maintain uh overwhelming bipartisan support. Recently, we have been pushing for immigration and refugee protections for Hong Kongers uh, in, uh, in light of the persecution that is now uh, escalating. Um, and I sometimes have to explain to people, you have to take a step back and understand that the fact that we can introduce bipartisan immigration and refugee legislation in Congress right now is it, it's in itself a miracle, you know, under administration and in a climate where immigration is is the last thing that I think anybody can see uh, getting support. But
0: so is so is it a little bit like the enemy of the en- of my enemy is my friend, <laughs> you know? And because I, I think I imagine you must struggle with this, where the administration is using language of fear and nationalism to talk about China. It must be hard to be comfortable with that
1: I think that this um, for me is not new. I think that um, issues and causes has always been co-opted and, and uh, leveraged by politicians and parties as their sort of way to uh, motivate their base. Um, I think that what the reality has been is that um, we have benefited. Uh, in a lot of ways because of larger sets of circumstances around the pandemic, about COVID. I'm not a purist and uh, ideologue. Um, I believe that um, people do the right thing for the wrong reason all the time. Hmm. um, And that I don't need them to do it for the right reason. And I think that that's part of understanding the politics of compromise and and sort of what a democratic um, uh, society and government Uh, how it operates.
0: You and your family, you've taken different approaches to advocating for Hong Kong. And I want to talk about that a little bit. You mentioned how your parents are still there. Your dad's been arrested a few times. You left and advocate from inside the United States where you're a citizen. I wonder if the last year or so has given you any perspective on the merits of each of those approaches?
1: Well, first of all, I, I always, from the beginning have said this, that um, I, I feel very privileged, and, and it's only thanks to, you know, not just folks like my dad over the years, but over the past 13 months, the protesters, the fact that they have persevered in the midst of so much challenges and threats, because I often say that if the protesters and the h- folks in Hong Kong just went home after the two million people march in July last year or June last year, there would not be Hold HKDC.
0: Why not? Why, why do you think your organization, the Hong Kong Democracy Council, wouldn't exist if the protesters hadn't kept coming out?
1: Because what they were able to do was to keep the eyes of you know, global attentions, but also specifically the U.S. politicians on Hong Kong longer than just sort of the, the 15 seconds and, you know, the headlines that originally the, the marches generated uh, in the past, you know, there was no one to actually walk the halls and go from office to office to say, well, now we have to do something, actually. We can't just say that we support it. We got to work out what the U.S. policy and strategy is. But that takes time, and that takes you know, um, you know, resources and efforts. And what was so important was that by staying on the street, they kept Hong Kong as a global news story and kept the interest and attention of the U.S. officials and lawmakers.
0: I have a friend who's a China scholar, and she said that the one question she wanted to ask was what your favorite Hong Kong snack was <laughs> and where she can get it in New York. So I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> I'm also curious.
1: Every time that I return to Hong Kong, when I leave the airport, I go to a um, noodle shop in, um, in in a place in uh, a, a district called Sao Gai Wan which is closer to where my family lives. Um, And they make fishball noodles. Their fishball is what I look forward to every uh, time I go. And I actually eat there probably like almost every day when I'm there. Um, Oh my gosh. Sadly, uh, there is just no equivalent uh, outside (laughs) of Hong Kong. So I don't know if they are able to do this. Like I actually was thinking about seeing if I can maybe make a, Twitter posts for people to send me some fish balls. Um, <laughs> I, um, it was never my intention to, to um, sort of be the face. And as I said, I mean, my training and my history of my work has always been, I believe in building power that people can exercise themselves. But
0: as long as you're a fugitive, you could get some fish balls out of it.
1: Exactly. So I'm now thinking that uh, (laughs) I don't want to be the face, but if I'm going to be at least in the front page for a little while, um, I would like some perks that might come with it.
0: Samuel Chu, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Samuel Chu is the founder of the Hong Kong Democracy Council. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and we had a lot of help on this episode from Daniel Avis. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. For the next few weeks, programming note, I'm going to be on vacation. But that means you can look forward to What Next episodes featuring the amazing Ray Suarez. Be sure to tune in, and I will catch you back here in September. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris.
1: See you soon.